Abolition. Abolition. Kanye West actually has a very political point in one of his new songs. It's called New Slave. And he talks about something that you don't typically think about within a rap song. Private prison, something we talk about on the Young Turks quite often. So I want to read you some of his lyrics, and please excuse me for sounding like a white girl who does not sound cool while she reads Kanye West. <laughs> um, but he says, meanwhile, the DEA teamed up with the CCA, that's Corrections Corporation of America. Uh, they're trying to lock niggas up. They're trying to make new slaves. See, that's, that's that private-owned prison. Get your peace today. So I love the fact that, you know, he's talking about something that's a real problem in the country. It's been a real problem in the country since the 1980s when authorities realized, oh my God, our prisons are overpopulated. We don't know what to do. Um, and it's because we're arresting so many people for nonviolent drug offenses. And of course, these corporations start popping up and they say, well, you know what? We can make a lot of money off of uh, imprisoning these people, nonviolent or violent, who cares? As long as there's profits to be made, let's do it. Um, and because of these ridiculous drug laws, you're seeing that a disproportionate amount of black and Latinos are getting arrested, prosecuted, and locked away for nonviolent drug offenses as opposed to white people, okay? And there are statistics to back it up. Even though uh, more white people will smoke marijuana, more black people will get arrested for it, and more black people will spend time in prison for it. Um, so I like that Kanye West has this new song called New Slaves, because this is a new, is form, a new of form of slavery, where we will lock up people of color, and at that same time, we will force them to work for a few cents each hour while they're in prison. Is it, is it more like indentured, I mean, it's I mean slavery, it's but yeah. indentured servitude. Do, do prisoners actually make income, even if it's significantly yeah. below? They do, yeah. The, they do? Yeah. Okay, that's interesting. What do they do with it? Is it like just to barter? I think it's held in an account think, for after they oh, leave. For after they're released, yes. I see. Uh, but it is significantly below the minimum yeah. wage. Yeah, I mean, uh, it's as little as 25 cents an hour. Oh and, and also, if the prisoners refuse to work, they can be held in isolation. isolation. Mm -hmm. So it is slavery. So it is, I mean, yeah, slavery. I mean, yeah. And yeah. they are, you know, there are acts of violence committed against them. If they don't work, I mean, I personally think that putting somebody in a hole, you know, putting somebody in isolation is cruel and unusual punishment. I've been against that for a very long time. To me, that's, that's no, different no different than, different like, than whipping like whipping somebody. somebody. You know what I mean? It's, it's, breaking, it's breaking them. them. It's yeah. breaking them so that they'll, so then, they'll then follow orders. So I want to give you guys specific stats because, you know, it's one thing to say, hey, this is happening. It's another thing to be detailed about it. Um, you know, the entire U.S. population, uh, while the entire U.S. population is only 13.6% black, 40% of its vast prison population, over 2.5 million people, is black. In 2010, black males were incarcerated at a rate of uh, 4,347 inmates per 100,000 U.S. residents of the same race and gender compared to 678 inmates per 100,000 uh, white males. Wow. Wow. Yeah. And I bet we wouldn't be all that surprised to find that much of that disparity is probably due to the drug war. Um, yeah. But also, I think that a lot of people will be quick to discount the message in this because of Kanye West and it's, you know, it's a song. But I mean, I think that would be that would be unnecessarily discounting the history of political rap. Like that has always been a big part of rap, hip hop, all of that is is a message about what's going on that's not covered on CNN. And exactly. that's totally true. Yeah, I mean, it's music coming from a culture spoken by somebody who I think mm -hmm. has more legitimacy to tell that story. And I think mm -hmm. that that's what's so important. It's actually, it's actually educating, educating a people, a people who hopefully know about it, but may not. And it's a way to get through instead of a white lady with pretty hair telling the story on CNN. Once again, the man, Kanye West. <laughs> Oh.
My mama was raised in the era when clean water was only served to the fairest skin. Doing clothes, you would have thought I had help, but they wasn't satisfied unless I picked the cotton myself. You see, it's broken, go raise some nests that don't touch anything in the stove. And it's written, nigga, raise some nests that come in, please, my mama. What you want? A Bentley fur coat? A diamond chain? All you centers and jails 
And tonight we're taking a deep dive into global private prison industries, who, what, when, how, where, and why. And, of course, soul-stirring, powerful music, spoken word, and educational audio productions. And, uh, And FYI, Abolition Today is not listed as an entertainment show. This is an educational program, or as KRS-One would say, edutainment. So what's up, Houston? How's your week been, man? Hey, it's been great. Opening track. Good stuff going on in the background. You know, uh, been communicating with a lot of people from the inside, you know, those incarcerated throughout the country. So it's a lot of information that's coming in. And a lot of things that we're going to cover within the uh, within the program tonight. Yeah, I'm looking forward to all of that, man. What did you think of that opening track? You know, I love it. I mean, you know, he hits them when he says, "See, they'll confuse you with some bullshit like the New World Order." Not the New World Order, yeah. Meanwhile, the DEA teamed up with CCA. They trying to lock niggas up. They trying to make new slaves. See, that's the privately owned prisons. Get your peace today. You know, this is why we exist. This is why we have this show, Max. Right there. Amen to that, brother. Yeah. <laughs> um, you know, it's amazing uh, that right after that song came out and CCA became the go-to word all across the country, Uh, largely thanks to Kanye West exposing them like that, they changed their name to Core Civic. You know, they had this bad rep after that. They always had a bad rep. These private prisons are a poison. And, you know, you're profiting off other people's misery. But uh, I'm glad that we have artists out there who are willing to to talk about these things and call them out. And, And, you know, as you heard, as many have heard here on this program, there's always some powerful music that just moves you and helps you to understand what's happening. Absolutely, and that's one of the that's one of the uh, most powerful means of communication. You know, a lot of times people learn things better with music. Sometimes, you know, maybe it's the sound waves and either the one K signal that's going across. Who knows? But you know, we we cover it from both angles. We cover it or multiple angles. We have the music, we have the spoken word, and then we also have you know a lot of videos and a lot of sound bites as well. Man, uh, I keep saying it, and I think you're you're in agreement with me that the last segment, uh, Bridging the Gap, has been so powerful. We're coming to the end of it, actually. We've only got tonight and one more after that, and it'll be the end of the book where Ossie Davis has been reading Frederick Douglass. And, you know, we mix it with some music, but it's been super powerful, man. And tonight, it might break you up. I know it did me. Producing it, dude, I got to tell you, I had some tears going just thinking about the the journey, not just the individual journey, but the journey of our family, the journey of our community, the journey of our people, all wrapped up into what Frederick Douglass was telling in his own words happening to him. And, you know, he is one of the greatest storytellers that's ever lived. <laughs> so yeah, it's been very powerful. That one has moved the heck out of me. And tonight I think Absolutely. it's going to move a lot more people. Yes. You know, like I always say, it's it's probably, you know, my favorite part of the program is listening to that because it, you feel it. It puts you there. It puts you there. You know, Bridges the gap. Some Hollywood made-up story that this is really what happened. And, you know, you find the, the 
the similarities when you hear them talk about it, like, wow, I, that's kind of what's happening here, and that's kind of what's happening here now, because it is, you know, as Brian Stevenson of the Equal Justice Initiative has said over and over again, he does not believe that slavery was ever abolished. He believes that it was it evolved, and it did evolve. Slavery was never abolished, and that's what we're going to be talking about a lot tonight, is one of the main participants who really pushed the envelope and turned prison for profit into a global industry that uh, is one of the largest companies on earth, like literally, right? Literally. Mm-hmm. Well, I want to give you, uh, I want to give our audience an opportunity to participate in abolition today. Uh, as you've heard, we love music and poetry and spoken word, and we are asking for submissions from uh, DJs, music producers, spoken word singers, and songwriters and speakers. Abolition today uh, wants you to send us a one to five minute audio or video production about legal slavery. 13th Amendment, prison for profit, private prisons, policing for profit, racism in the court, or any content that underlines or supports the slavery abolitionist argument. If you want your music or your voice heard, send submissions as soon as possible to abolitionistcenter at gmail.com. That's abolitionistcenter at gmail.com. We're hella picky, so be sure to send your best. And if you just want to say a few words about us for us to play on air, we'll accept that also. The goal is to let your voice be heard, artistically or otherwise. You said anything to that? I co-sign that. Let's hear it. You know, <laughs> there's a lot of talent out there. A lot of it talent. Is, it also goes for people, you know, who who are incarcerated as well. This is open to everyone. Right. Exactly. It's open to everyone. I mean, if you want to, you can get something from the outside to us, I mean, from the inside to us, we'll definitely play it on air for you. Well, I, I guess uh, no time better than the present and then just to get into some of this research. And uh, this is going to take me a minute, so I, I feel like I want to get it out the way uh, early anyway, all right? I did some research on the GEO group. I also did research on G4S and CCA, but it's far too much to put together in just one presentation here tonight. So I really boiled it down to the shortest uh, bare-bones things that I could uh, put together to give you the truth as it is about these huge global monsters called for-profit private prisons. So let's start with the research on the GEO group. The GEO group incorporated is a Florida-based Companies specialized in privatized corrections, detention, and mental health treatment. It maintains facilities in North America, Australia, South Africa, and the United Kingdom. In 2015, the GEO Group's federal contracts with the United States government for operating prisons generated about 45% of its revenues. GEO Group facilities include prisons of all three security levels, immigration detention centers, minimum security detention centers, and mental health and residential treatment facilities. It owns numerous facilities and, in other cases, operates state or federal facilities under contract. Wackenhut Corrections Corporation, WCC, was formed as a division of the Wackenhut Corporation, now a subsidiary of G4S Secure Solutions, in 1984. It was incorporated as a Wackenhut subsidiary in 1988. In July of 1994, the magic year when the Clinton crime bill came out, WCC became a separately traded public company. In 2003, WCC management 
raise funds to repurchase all common stock held by G4S, changing its name to the Geo Group Incorporated. Now, remember what I just said. First, they were Wackenhut Corrections Corporation. They sold half of their stocks to G4S, changed their name to Geo Group, and then went and bought it back. Doesn't that even sound like money laundering? I mentioned, uh, since we talked about G4S a little bit, let me say something about them. And this comes from the Chaos Company, April 2014, Vanity Fair. The London-based global security behemoth G4S is the world's third largest private sector employer, the world's largest private sector employer, and commands an armed force three times the size of the British military. G4S is based near London and is traded on the stock exchange there. Though it remains generally unknown to the public, it has operations in 120 countries and more than 620,000 employees. In recent years, it has become, become the world's third largest private employer after Walmart and the Taiwanese manufacturing conglomerate Foxconn. The fact that such a huge private entity is a security company is a symptom of our times. Most G4S employees are lowly guards, but a growing number are military specialists dispatched by the company into what are delicately known as complex environments to take on jobs that national armies lack the skill or the will to do. Now back to GEO and how they gobbled up the entire industry to become the world's global beast we know today. In 2005, the GEO Group acquired Correctional Services Corporation, CSC, for $62 million in cash and assumed $124 million of that company's debt. GEO sold CSC's juvenile services divisions in 2005 to, to James Slattery, CSC former CEO, for $3.75 million. Again with the money laundering. We bought it for $62 million and we're going to sell it right back to the same guy who owned it before for $3.75 million. Slattery renamed this business as Slattery Youth Services International. On August 12, 2010, the GEO Group acquired Cornell Companies, formerly Cornell Corrections, for $730 million in stock and cash. I'm sure many know about Cornell Corrections. GEO announced the closing of its $360 million cash purchase. Now they're spending $360 million in cash purchase of community education centers on April 4th, 2017. CEC owned and or managed more than 12,000 beds in the U.S. This included over 7,000 community reentry beds. It provided in-prison treatment services at over 30 government-operated facilities. As of the fiscal year ending December 31st, 2012, GEO managed 96 facilities worldwide, totaling approximately 73,000 beds, including 65,949 active beds and 6,056 idle beds. The company had an average facility occupancy rate of 95.7% for 2012. Let's talk about the man who started it all, the evil roots of a rotten tree. George Russell Wackenhut, September 3, 1919, December 31, 2004, was the founder of Wackenhut Private Security Corporation. In 1951, Wackenhut joined the FBI as a special agent in Indianapolis and Atlanta. 
handling counterfeit money and bad check cases, and tracked down Army deserters. He resigned in 1954 to launch Special Agent Investigations in Coral Gables, Florida, with three other former agents, William Stanton, A. Kenneth Ashell, and Miami lawyer and FBI agent Ed Du Bois, Jr., Following an infamous in-office fistfight with Du Bois in 1955, a professional split occurred, and Du Bois went on to form his own company, Investigators Incorporated, focusing on private investigations. In 1958, Wackenhut bought out his remaining partners, renamed the company after himself, and expanded into the security guard field and went public in 1965. George Wackenhut was known as a hard-line, racist right-winger. He built up dossiers on Americans suspected of being communists or left-leaning, subversives, and sympathizers, and sold the information to interested parties. Frank Donner claimed in his book, Age of Surveillance, that Wackenhut Corrections maintained and updated its files even after the McCarthy hysteria had ebbed, adding the names of anti-war protesters, and civil rights demonstrators to his list of derogatory types. By 1965, during the civil rights movement, Wackenhut was boasting to potential investors that the company maintained files on 2.5 million suspected dissidents, and that was one in 46 American adults at the time. In 1966, after acquiring the private files of Carl Barslag, a former staff member of the House Un-American Activities Committee, yes, they had something called the Un-American Activities Committee, Wackenhut claimed with more than 4 million names, it had the largest privately held file on suspected dissidents in America. In 1975, after the United States Congress investigated companies that had private files, Wackenhut gave its files to the now defunct Anti-Communist Church League of America of Wheaton, Illinois. When he sold his company for $570 million in 2002, which is $759 million today, he owned more than 50% of its stock. Wackenhut died on December 31st of 2004 of heart failure at his home in Vero Beach, Florida at the age of 85. During the 1980s, Financial pressures, as well as overcrowding, led to the privatization of increased numbers of state and federal correction facilities. Wackenhut ventured into this new market when WSI was hired to design, construct, and operate an immigration and naturalization service detention center in Colorado in 1987. You'll hear more about Colorado's connection later in the program. In the next year, Wackenhut formed Wackenhut Corrections Corporation, WCC, as a wholly owned subsidiary and received contracts for two 500-bed facilities in Texas. WCC went public in 1994, right along with the Clinton, Clinton crime bill, selling approximately 26% of its stock, with the remainder under Wackenhut Corp's control. By the end of 1994, the number of prison beds under its direction had totaled 14,000, with annual revenues of $105 million. Consultant and construction fees generated an additional $80 million, and profit margins as high as 10%. Corrections became one of the most successful areas of Wackenhut's business. Facilities under 
WCC's control included prisons in Australia, England, and Puerto Rico, as well as in six states in the United States facilities in Texas alone. A contract in December of 94 for the construction and management of a 1,300-bed medium security prison in Florida provided WCC with $50 million, its largest contract as of that date. By the mid-1990s, Wackenhut organizational structure comprised three main components, domestic operations, government services, and the international operations. Domestic operations provided, in addition to traditional uniformed guards and other physical security services, such services as loss prevention analysis and system design, employee and prospective employee screening, as Yusuf explained last week, and insurance inspections, fraud investigations, strike support, and transportation of assets, meaning taking prisoners from one place to another. The rise in airplane hijackings in the 1970s and the continued threat of terrorism brought Wackenhut into the country's airports, where the guards were charged with screening passengers prior to boarding. The Nuclear Service Division of Domestic Operations were providing physical services to 16 nuclear power generating plants by 1995. The Domestic Operations Group also oversaw Wackenhut's Alaska pipeline activities. This beast is in everything. With the increasing privatization of corrections facilities, Wackenhut support services and creative food management, which offered specialized food services to correctional institutions, increased revenue from $3 million in 1989 to $25 million in 1994. And this is how they created all these subsidiaries that profit off of people's misery. Well, the International Operations Group of Wackenhut, through its subsidiary, Wackenhut International Incorporated, extended Wackenhut's domestic service to six continents and more than 50 countries, including placing security guards at 18 U.S. embassies and missions, New markets opened for Wackenhut in the 1990s with the fall of the Berlin Wall. And with increased normalization of relations with China, Wackenhut opened up offices in Russia and in the Czech Republic and began to develop contacts with mainland China through its Hong Kong office. Additional expansion came as the company entered India and Pakistan and gained new embassy security contracts with the U.S. State Department. The 1994 Acquisition of 60% ownership in SEGES extended Wackenhut into the Ivory Coast, described, described in the company's 1994 annual report as a strategic move. As late as 1995, the Wackenhut corrections remained under the control of George R. Wackenhut, its founder, who functioned as chairman of the board and chief executive officer, 50% of the company's stock. In the early 90s, however, George Wackenhut turned the presidency of his company over to his son, Richard R. Wackenhut, who also functioned as the company's chief operating officer. The company had also seen a shift in management away from personnel traditionally recruited from among retired police and military officers to those with business schools and established business backgrounds with an average age in the mid-40s. This deprivatization of corrections facilities remained an important Wackenhut market, and the company continued to look to the privatization of government functions for new markets for its service. With a reduction in the long-term debt 
from 57 million in 1993 to 39 million in 94. Wow, that's just like a bonus they gave him in 94. And a credit agreement allowing the company as much as 60 million dollars in new loans. Wackenhut was poised to continue its program of expansion and diversification. In the mid 90s, the private prison industry seemed on the verge of explosive growth with national inmate populations at all-time highs and most states feeling the pinch of rising incarceration costs. The privatization lobby, notably Wackenhut Corrections and its principal competitor, Corrections Corporation of America, now known as CoreCivic, appeared to offer a cheaper and ultimately more rehabilitative alternative to the traditional prison system. In mid-96, prison officials in several states, including Florida, California, Texas, and New Mexico conducted some studies to determine whether or not private prison, prison privatization made economic sense. The preliminary findings in Florida were particularly encouraging for Wackenhut. In a report filed in November of 96, the Florida Corrections Commission estimated that the state would need to devote $200 million to expanding its prison capacity and that privatization was the most cost-effective way to address this increased demand. In response to the report, Wackenhut Corrections produced a 28-page proposal outlining its plan to systematically privatize all of the state's prisons, region by region. At around this time, Wackenhut entered the contract with New Mexico to build a 3,400-bed prison in the state. However, this potential business opportunity abruptly evaporated the following year. By mid-1997, most studies showed that the cost efficiency of privatization remained undetermined and that the push for more private prisons might be premature. In Florida, new data revealed a growing pattern of leniency in the state's judicial system, resulting in a slower increase in the state's prison population. At the same time, New laws allowed for an increase in the state's existing prison capacity to 150%, obviating the need for the construction of new facilities. So we see how they trick that in there and why all our prisons now are at basically a minimum of 150%. It was for Wackenhut's benefit. Florida legislators were also daunted by the scope of Wackenhut's proposal, which struck most as too large an investment for an unproven business model. Florida's position reflected a nationwide trend. Even New Mexico scaled back its original contract with Wackenhut by nearly a third. This sudden shift delivered a major hit to the subsidiary stock, which dropped to $15 in November, down from $45 the previous June. So they were at a high of $45, and then they dropped to a low of $15.50. The parent company market value suffered as well. Share prices of Wackenhut collections fell below $15 during the same period. During the Obama administration, the Holder Department of Justice announced it would be reconsidering private prison contracts. This caused prison stocks to plummet and forced Wall Street to stop trading in fear the markets would bottom out. On the day Trump was elected, private prisons were the top winners, with stock rising well over 100%. Since then, all of the major banks have ended their relationships with private prisons. In addition to nationwide divestment programs, excessive scrutiny due to two Sanders campaigns and a pandemic which drastically reduced arrest rates, GeoStock is down to $12 a share today, a more than 60% loss than just three years ago. Uh, this is a very complex 
and far-reaching industry. I can barely touch the surface of it here and what I express to you. I would highly suggest that you read an article from Dunwalk about the Clinton administration. That link will be made available on our page. It is in itself very detailed, but it's all about the facts. And if you really want to know how these things came to be, you'll find it there. All sources and references for this research will be made available on Abolition Today on Facebook. And that is the end of my presentation. Yusuf? Wow, Max. <laughs> you know, I said you you said you were going deep. That was very deep. I mean, so much to unpack. I mean, just all, it's so much. And... It can't be refuted. I mean, these are actual facts that you're putting out there following the money trail from start to where we are today, how it all got started. You know, what's uh, what's what's uh, really unique is how it ties into almost every industry that you can think about. You know, when you started mentioning, mentioning the Dakota Pipeline, I was like, wow, and you shocked me with that one because I wasn't even aware of that one. <laughs> you know, they got they an had... army three times the size of Britain. <laughs> yeah, this this is ridiculous. And that's why, you know, we're going to share some of some links that I have to just breaking down the inner workings of it, of the GEO group. We have uh, the the link to the board of directors and – I encourage everyone to read about the board of directors, see their connections, see how it how it uh, exponentially goes into other areas, all the way into the White House. And we also have uh, different information as to how the GEO group ties in with many people's 401k plans and their IRAs. Uh, we have links that show who the major shareholders of the company are. You know, that's another thing to where you can see how just in where you go shopping or where you where you bank is is also tying your money into this. It's it's a very deep rabbit hole. You know, there's even uh if if we have a moment there's this one article that really jumped out to me. It was from May 2nd of 2019 that we're also going to put on the page. It's provided by Bloomberg.com. It says, the GEO Group announces contracts with Bureau of Prisons for company-owned North Lake, Michigan Correctional Facility, and Reeves, which is actually three detention centers. And within it, it was sort of like how they're, they're boasting certain things, and three just jumped out at me, where it says, here, here are the major benefits of having GEO Group. GEO's ability to declare future quarterly cash dividends and the timing and amount of such future dividends. GEO's ability to successfully pursue further growth and continue to enhance shareholder value. GEO's ability to assess the capital markets in the future on satisfactory terms at all. GEO's ability to sustain uh, company-wide occupancy rates at its facilities. You know, and all of that jumps out is saying, we're going to show you how these jails are going to make you plenty of money, we're going to increase the value of our stockholders, and we're going to guarantee that we're going to keep these facilities at a certain capacity. And you say to yourself, how? And that's how all of this ties into the 13th Amendment, which is the premise behind 
you know, our program and other programs like it. So it goes full circle, Max. Right, man. And, you know, the things that stood out for me, uh, two of them in particular, is one, the roots of this all, George Wackenhut. I mean, we're talking about this dude that really was spying on the Black Liberation Movement as well as the anti-war protesters and listing them as dissidents and then giving it to the United States government under some committee they had called the Un-American Committee, whatever the hell that means, and it had up to 4 million names, which is one in 46 people in this country. But, again, that's a fallacy of the average. When you say one in 46 Americans, you count everybody. And it wasn't everybody that was affected. It was specific groups he was keeping tabs on, meaning that he had just about everybody's name. And then he would sell that to government uh, or, or other governments uh, for a price. And, you know, the other thing was the money laundering that you see. It's so freaking blatant. Hey, right. uh, we're going to look up with G4S. G4S is going to buy our stocks at this price. We're going to change our name and then buy our stocks back at, at, at a cheaper price. And then we're going to buy this one from this guy and then sell it right back to him for a cheaper price. It's crazy, man. It's right there in black and white. Corporate shell game. Corporate, Corporate shell, shell game. The people's lives. Because they're and that's also a reason why. The other link that we're going to have there, the SEC filings, the Security and Exchange Commission, where you can see how they outlined all of this right in their filings when they first when they first uh, initiated the company, that this was the shell game, and they basically put it out there, and they said, look, you want in on this? This is how you can play the game. Well, you know what? Uh, I want to hear about the, 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 the information you pulled together, but... Before we do that, let's uh, play a, a, an audio clip that we have from Colorado Representative Buffy McFadden, uh, and she talked in depth about private prisons in Colorado State. I, I'll go without describing what she's talking about because she does that for herself. So here we are, Colorado Representative Buffy McFadden on private prisons. Abolition, of course, what what can you tell me about your work with uh, the prison industry? You have a, a large prison concentration in your district. Tell us some of the issues that we face uh, with that. Uh, my district is in Pueblo and Fremont counties in Colorado, and what makes my district very special uh, is I have eight state and four federal penitentiaries. Mm -hmm. I have more prisons in my state house district than I think anywhere else in the United States of any state house or house or assembly district. Uh, I have the most maximum, maximum facility in the United States as far as prison supermax or the administrative maximum, the ADX. And I have constituents ranging from people like Musawi, Richard Reed, uh, Terry Nichols, Kaczynski, all very familiar names, yeah. all, all in my facility. If you're an adjudicated terrorist, odds are you're my constituent. Uh, also, and people wonder why I call them constituents, they're actually counted on the census. They do live in my district, and I believe the federal government should count them on the census because inmates in, in, in communities do have impacts right. in those communities that need to have represent, representation. Um, I have eight state facilities. I have the most maximum security state facility and several other state facilities uh, for a total of 12, and I'm going to 13 prisons by 2009. Uh, in the United States, we've seen exponential growth in our prison industry, and Colorado is no different. Uh, since 
19, I have some numbers for these. Since 1992 okay. to 2004, we've seen a 7% growth in our prisons in Colorado. And during the same time frame, the national growth has been about 4%. Yet, in all that time, and an issue that's dear to your heart and to a lot of other uh, progressive people who believe in helping other people, that we do better when everyone does well right. rather than a right. few, uh, that we're 49th in treatment and funding of treatment in Colorado, which I think adds to the pressure of the prison system when we don't treat people for drug and alcohol addiction. Uh, Colorado today has a total of 22,469 inmates just in the prison system. That's not counting those that are on parole. We have 20,137 men, 2,332 females. Since 10 years ago, 1996, we have doubled our prison population in Colorado. Is that because there's just more crime in Colorado? Or has, has things changed in terms of uh, practices of prisons or it's an interesting dynamic. Mandatory sentencing definitely has had an impact on prison population. When did mandatory sentencing start becoming kind of the, the norm, the kind of in vogue uh, type of lawmaking? Uh, I think it, it was it was a reaction that somehow we've been too soft on crime. So mm -hmm. if we go to mandatory sentencing, darn it, we're being tough on crime and we're doing what's right. Often what happens when we have that mentality is we forget what happens after those people are incarcerated. Uh, and it's an out-of-sight, out-of-mind issue. When you come to Pueblo or Fremont counties, prisons are in our community. We see them. We don't forget about them. That's regular dinner conversation of what's happening at the prisons. In Fremont County alone, it's the largest employer, the state of Colorado, through the Department of Corrections. So basically everyone in Fremont County knows someone or is someone who works in the state uh, prison facility. So it's, it's normal conversation. But when you go to the metro area, it's Colorado Springs and the Denver metro area, where most of these inmates come from. There's an obvious connection between the highest populated counties and how many people go to prison. It's not normal conversation. Right. And that's what needs to change in this state and also in this country. Uh, we have seen the introduction of a for-profit incentive in the prison industry. And now that's something that I know you really are very adamant about. Tell me about what happened with the private prison that came to uh, your district and wanted to set up shop here and, and start a brand new private pr prison facility. Uh, I, I'll do that and I'll go back one step for people who don't know anything about private prisons. Okay. We have several national corporations. We have Community Corrections Corporation, which is short for CCA out of Tennessee. Okay. We also have uh, one of the premier institutions, what is formerly Wackenhut, right. which is now the GEO group. A, uh, group and, and I'll say it for the record and there isn't a single CEO of a for-profit prison corporation in the United States that doesn't know this about me. I have no use whatsoever for the private prison industry because they've given an incentive to incarcerate. Stockholders make dividends off a body in a cell. It goes against everything we should be doing in government. In government, we should, I as, I as a legislator should be doing everything I can to either maintain or reduce prison populations. A for-profit corporation has every incentive to keep seeing those populations increase, to keep making money at the taxpayer's expense, to keep making money. Uh, I think it's immoral. Well, some of, in, in terms of just the, uh, the moral issue, I am totally there with you because I've seen when uh, working with youth corrections as a therapist, um, the statistic I heard was 87% of our adult male prisoners spent time in 
juvenile lockup. Or in a juvie facility. Exactly, a juvie uh -huh. facility. So if you put someone in juvie as a, a teenager, chances are an 87% chance out of 100, they're going to be an adult person. They're institutionalized. So it, it's a immoral on that on that purpose. But so basically, they're, yeah. they're, it's like taking the SAT. You take the pre-SAT and the SAT. It's a warm-up. It's a warm-up. We're warming up. It's junior varsity. We're going to make sure we have the varsity squad. That's what private prison industry thrives on that. Sixty percent of children who have a parent in prison in this country end up in prison. They know they have a captive audience for their profit, and they somehow convince lawmakers and the federal government that they can do it better and cheaper. They can't. They cost money at every turn. They get the best inmates. When an inmate becomes a problem uh, behavior-wise, it goes back to the, to the public system. If the inmate gets sick and has to receive services, medical care, outside of the facility, they go back, back to the, the state, state prison system. Right. Anytime an inmate starts to cost money, they come back to the state system. And that's why they can say they're cheaper, because they get the cheapest, most well-behaved inmates in the first place. And then they, the, the ones that make it an issue or a problem, they, they go back, back to the state. They go back. Well, talk about the uh, the the agreement that Geo. Oh, exactly. In Pueblo, Colorado, Geo Group, formerly Wack and Hut, came to Pueblo to want to do a, a pre-release parole revocation center in Pueblo. So they first came in and they were going to do a dorm-style building, right? Which is what would be a pre-release parole revocation center. I don't have as great a problem with those facilities if they're really doing treatment and programming to prepare inmates to succeed on the outside, deinstitutionalize them. Right. per se, uh, and, and get them the skills to make it. Then they went to a pod design, and I looked at that, and I, and I really questioned my own city of Pueblo and said, don't you realize they're building a medium security prison? That's not a dorm. Um, and I think they would have tried to change the contract. But what was more despicable on behalf of this company, Geo Group out of Florida, they wanted the state to guarantee 90% of the beds would be filled, and if those beds weren't filled, they would still get paid for 90%. Abolition. Abolition. Once again, that was Colorado Representative Buffy McFadden on private prisons, and you're listening to Abolition Today. Brother Yusuf, comments? You know, I was ready to go in or whatever, but then she kind of softened me up when she started speaking negatively against the private prison industry because she hit the nail right on the head. I mean, how can you, when you have justice tied to the stock market or you have it tied to based on, you know, revenue generated based on bodies being in cells, then you don't have justice at all. You know, she made that clear there. But I have my other issues with her that are beside the point. But she she was definitely in line with what we're saying about the GEO group and private prisons like that. Max, I actually have a prison call coming in right now. You have a prepaid call. You will not be charged for this call. This call is from uh, an inmate. My unmuted, do you hear me, Max? Prison. This call yes, we hear it. Customer assistance, collection, or complaint procedures, or to block future calls, dial. Thank you for using Global Tail Link. That's you robbing this brother while he's talking oh. to us. Global Tail yeah. Link. Hey, Please what's welcome going to on, brother? How you doing, man? Brother. I have you live on the air right now. Yeah, yeah, no question. How you feeling, man? Tell all the people I said, what's up, man? I'm in the struggle. 
Oh, we 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 appreciate you contacting us and keeping us informed as to what's going on, you know, on the front lines, brother. Absolutely, absolutely. From the, from day one, you know, I wanted to reach out, see what's going on. You know, we forgotten, man. We humans too. You know, uh, no matter what, no matter what, innocent or guilty, we human beings. And at the end of the day, society got to know what's going on. But right now, for uh, for the most part, for those who we reached out to, they already kicked up. You know, they uh, reached out to the governor, reached out to the local mayor, reached out to the uh, politicians, grassroots organizations on the front line. They did what they did. So uh, as of day before yesterday, they gave us our masks and allowed us to wear masks throughout the facility, sanitation products and things of that nature. But prior to that, it was like savagery in here. You know what I'm saying? And the tension was very high, bro, because at the end of the day, you don't know if you want to live or die, you know? And a lot of people fighting to get out of prison and be telling them this is where you're going to die at, Trent State Prison, the belly of the beast. It's dangerous, you know what I mean? So right. so we thank you. We salute you at the end of the day for people that being on the front line for us, you know? Uh, we appreciate it. So how are they doing as far as uh, when, when someone becomes uh, infected or they test positive? So now what they're doing is, you know, I don't know if it was, if it was malicious or, or, or prior to this where people, you know, it, they got caught off guard. They didn't know what to do, you know what I mean? So after we, you know, basically wrote remedies up um, through the kiosk system and stuff like that, through JPEG, right into the administrations and the powers that be. So now the process and protocol is, for instance, if an individual get, uh, 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 say he's sick, right? And so that now the nurse come over to come over to see you, ask you what's going on, see if you got the symptoms. They, they check your temperature, right? If you're not running the temperature, they, they keep coming back to see you for like two or three days. And if your temperature is running high, so now what they do is they seclude you and put you in a unit, right? And that unit is where basically if you're saying you're sick, you, they're not knowing for sure if you got the symptoms. Now, if you do, uh, after a certain amount of days, if, if the symptoms come back and they say, yo, you test positive, then they quarantine you, and they quarantine you for about 14 or 15 days. So pretty much uh, uh, they doing what they need to be doing. They following the CDC protocol, Department of Health protocol, which uh, is required for the prisons in the state of New Jersey. They're doing that now, right? But it's beginning to hit its peak in here, so it's running rampant. You know what I'm saying? So so basically it's just like uh, uh, we just got to wait till somebody get affected. Uh, we just got to wait for it to run its course because it's definitely in here. Do you have any idea on the numbers, like any the amount of deaths? Have there been any deaths, or how many people do you know of that are infected? Yeah, for so far, uh, been one death. About uh, 15 to 17 individuals been affected, quarantined, and then suspected individuals, about, about, about 10 to 12 individuals that's uh, suspected to have it here in this facility. Okay. Uh, you on also with, with uh, Max? Parthas, Max, do you have any questions for the brother? Uh, yeah, as a matter of fact, I do. One thing I'm concerned about is, you know, they're ignoring the many people don't show any symptoms or very little symptoms. So you're basically just left there to guess at that point. Right? And they're only uh, choosing the people who have the symptoms. And by that time, those who are asymptomatic have already spread it throughout the, the whole area. So that, that concerns me a lot. Um, do you know about the releases that have happened there in your facility? Anybody been released compassionately? Okay, he was asking, have there been any, any compassionate releases from the facility? 
No, 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 not here. Not here. It hasn't been. Not of yet. No compassionate release. And, and that's a good question because uh, there's several individuals I can name offhand that uh, you got one individual been here 45 years, right, uh, was up for parole three or four times. They denied him just basically off the strength of his time, you know what I mean? Um, he's about 60-something years old, 67 years old. You have another individual been down since 1978, 1976. He's about 71 years old. Uh, uh, he's vulnerable to this thing. Both of them is African-American. And so we already know that that uh, the underlying conditions that uh, is a factor in that. But sure. um, they're not taking us – they're not um, adhering or – uh, uh, giving us that attention like they're doing the minimum security facilities or the halfway houses or the county jails, you know, for whatever reason. Um, truly, uh, I believe that it's, 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 it's politics, you know what I mean? If you release somebody from in here, no matter how much time he got in, no matter when his eligibility date, it looks bad on, on, on for politics. Somebody from Trenton State Prison coming back into the uh, society uh, uh, for far as poli- uh, uh, political reasons, they, it's like a strike against them, so... This is like uh, a double negative, so to speak. You know what I mean? Right. What's can you can you describe what your unit looks like? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Basically, I'm on um, on a max of uh, uh, you know uh, lockdown pretty much all day. Um, uh, uh, 99 people. You know what I mean? We got we got kiosks, phone usage. Come to the uh, phone runners and stuff like that. Come to your door, use the phone. Uh, you got runners to run your hot water and stuff like that, but basically you locked down uh, for for this reason, for um, the uh, COVID-19 reason, you locked down basically all day. But when when not uh, when that wasn't present, whatever, you you basically doing programming and stuff like that. But it's definitely max. It's so, tight. So all programs are shut down. Yeah, all program religious services, no movement, no movements. Uh, you know, quote unquote social distancing, things of that nature. But uh, yeah, nothing. Showers. You got your kiosk, use and telephone. That's it. Other than that, you got an individual in the room. You know, um, for the most part, doing time, man. And you know, think for, uh, for older brothers, man. And thanks for brothers like uh, uh, brother Daniels and myself, man. Encouraging brothers, um, uh, going to them and asking them how they doing. You know, mental health wise, because being canned up in the room for 23 and a half hours, 24 hours a day. Uh, can 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 do damage traumatically to your psyche, you know. So we uh we gotta just definitely look out for each other, love on one another, man, and, and push the cause. So hopefully, man, we can get some attention and shed some light, and 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 um open some doors for advocacy groups like yourself, you know. Absolutely, Max. You have anything else? Max. Uh, yeah, I'm here, brother. I'm sorry. I had to um, mute while I was listening. No problem. Do you uh, have anything about, else for what, the brother? Yeah, what about your standard uh, cooking, cleaning, the jobs that they might have you do, whether it's for pay or not for pay? Are, are those things done with? Are somebody else doing those now? Kitchen duty, whatever it may be? If you couldn't hear them, as far as, like, work details that deal with, like, food prep and things of that nature, is that still being handled? Within or are they contracting that out? You know, just nah, general nah, nah, jobs that's, overall. No, that's being handled within. Uh, uh, you got inmate workers that work in the cookhouse. They have it prepping the food. For the most part, uh, they do. Um, you know, wearing masks and gloves. You know, uh-huh. uh, I trust. I trust. I trust them over against a contractor. You know. Right. I feel you on that. 
Appreciate you sharing the the news with us, and um, apparently your name is not Ellen DeGeneres, that's for sure, because, you know, she's sitting out there talking about sitting in her mansion and the quarantine is like being in jail, so she needs to hear you. She's not losing her comrades as she's sitting up there with watching them die off, seeing men 75 years old who should have been released 20 years ago still sitting there because nobody's compassionate enough to let them go in a pandemic. So, yeah, brother, we definitely appreciate you. Thank you very much. And I'm sorry Global Tell is robbing you while you talk to us. Yeah, yes, absolutely. Sir. Yes, sir. I know that already. All right. Um, um, if I could, before, before I guess you guys got to go or whatever, I just wanted to say I want to just reiterate, uh, Brother Yusuf, how important it is or, or try to advocate on behalf of, if not 
um, every institution in state of New Jersey. I'm talking about here in, in, in state prison where you got long-term offenders, right? Um, and, and, and besides, outside the fact that uh, um, the, the COVID-19 uh, virus, mm-hmm. I'm talking about the, the fact that we need help, man. We need help in the sense of um, um, brothers dealing with uh, long-term offenses and not getting the, uh, the, uh, the attention that seek through the courts, right? And then you got guys that's in here, drug drug cases. Come on. Brother Yusuf, come on. I'm talking about nonviolent offenses. Right. Doing, right? You, doing you life bids, with, basically. Yeah, doing life bids. This is a type of psychological rhetorical trickery that we are up against. And it's all political. So until groups and organizations like yourself, we continue to speak about this thing when this this uh, uh, coronavirus thing passed away. Uh, it's just like we're gonna we're gonna sink and we're gonna drown up in the flood of waters because nobody is nobody paying attention to our crime. You know what I mean? Because I promise you, for me and from what I'm hearing, it's all political, man. It's all political. It's all political. Anytime you got an individual that got a life sentence, nonviolent offense. Nonviolent offense. Granted, if this guy had other convictions, but nonviolent offense, you give him life, and this guy next to him got four or five bodies, and he got a 20-year sentence. It doesn't make sense. It, it, it doesn't make sense. So the disparity in the criminal justice system here in the state of New Jersey is, 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 is number one, is the highest percentage throughout the country, right? Number two, uh, uh, the disparity rate for sentences between white and black individuals is, is it's beyond measure, right? This is something we got to deal with. You have 60 seconds remaining. I know I'm throwing a leap hill stuff at you. It's like I'm throwing stuff on the wall or hoping it's thick, but this is the pain we're going through. And it's the first time we had an avenue to voice our cry. And I apologize and I feel like I'm just ranting, but what I'm saying to you is the truth. What I'm saying to you is the truth, bro. Now, brother, we hear you. Listen, we hear your cries, man. That's why we're here, you know, and that's why we're hoping we can get more people across the country to call in, because this is. I have 30 seconds remaining. This is the purpose of our platform. uh, Right. I I wanted, if if you mind, if we could reach back uh, to you in in about five seconds. Uh, uh, How you feeling, Max? Go ahead. You only got 20 left or 15 now before it's time Okay, so, yeah, I know I know someone else wants to call in and speak, so by all means. All right, thank you. I appreciate it. Wow, Max, you know. Yeah, so right. It just that's tells them how with. really important the work that you and I do and uh, you know, all of our comrades across all the platforms, all the social media platforms, all the different Facebook pages, that there's a real movement behind all of this. And, of course, you know, when we start talking about the exception clause of the 13th Amendment, we're hitting on the root to all of this. Word, man. And let's take this moment to give a shout-out to the people that uh, are the reason we're here. And that would be Jailhouse Lawyers Speak and I Am We Prison Advocacy Network, the Paul Cuffey Abolitionist Center, uh, Same Urge, and Prismatic Dreams. All of those organizations coming together to make sure that we provide a voice 
for brothers and sisters uh, behind enemy lines, as well as their families and those supporters on the outside to be able to not only speak their peace, but find out the truth of matters. Because we're going to break it down, as I said over the years, to the last molecule. <laughs> as I said earlier in the program, if you're listening to this show, you can never again say that you don't know. Yusuf? No. And also thank you, Max, because, you know, I personally thank you because you're the one that first presented the idea about the 13th Amendment to me. This call is from an inmate at a New Jersey state prison. This call will be monitored and recorded for customer assistance, collection, or complaint procedures, or to block future calls, dial 1. Thank you for using Global Tail Link. Yusuf, peace, my brother. Hey, peace, brother. Yes, sir. Um, if I may, I just wanted—I just want to say to the listeners, right, that um, that yeah, I understand the stigma, right, on, on um, incarcerated brothers, right, especially young black men. I know the stigma, right, and we don't have those people to advocate for us. But I promise you, anytime you do, uh, uh over the five to ten years, I believe is when you begin to reflect and see who you are. And we are in a we are in a prison system, right, that – hold on. Hello? Hello? Oh, yeah, I'm here. Yeah, um, he had to step in one second. But um, to follow up, this is this is Kenneth Day, who's currently housed at the New Jersey State Prison. Um, I'm also – and the, and the struggle, I'm also on the struggle with um, Dewan too at the moment. Um, You're the brother that we spoke like to said, last week. Yeah, the brother that you spoke to last week. Um, like I said, in, in retrospect, like we've been going over the um, New Jersey criminal sentencing and dispositions um, annual report that came out November ninth, November 2019, by bipartisan commission that was put together by the governor. And you know we go through the we go through the statistics and the data that was provided. You know they had some of they had some of recommendations that were provided. You know one of their one of their most biggest one of their one of their recommendations recommendations was eliminating mandatory minimum sentence for nonviolent drug drug offenders. Eliminating number two eliminating mandatory minimum sentence for nonviolent property offenses. Reducing the mandatory minimum sentence for for um. For crimes for second degree robberies and second degree burglaries that previously previously been subject to penalties associated with far more serious offenses, none of this stuff has been implemented. You know, you have a lot of people that's just been sitting down here. No one, nobody is addressing these issues. It, it appears as everything is being swept under the rug during this whole epi- during this this virus epidemic. So, you know, they they they're talking about. I mean, no disrespect to those elders who've been sitting in jail 20, 30-something years and may have underlying illnesses or people may be of age, but you still have those who've been sitting in and trying to combat the um, social injustice and the ills that's going on with the court system right now. These things, all these things are still in place. Nothing is actually being addressed, and we understand it's an epidemic, but... Nothing has been nothing has been dressed. Nothing has nothing has moved the ball. The goalpost hasn't been moved since this since this report came out. So, if you if you had the opportunity, which you have right now, to mm-hmm. make suggestions or some of the things you would like to see people outside doing, what would you like to see done? Well, 
Um, my my and my first my first thing would be to go back and re-rent whoever's in whoever's in charge of the the public defender's office. The public defender's office plays a major major role in 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 the, in the, in the temperature and what goes on through appeal advocacy. You understand because if if we don't have nobody, if we don't have people to actually care about things that things that have happened. Then we we actually do not have a voice at the first stage of fighting injustice. You understand what I'm saying? You these are this is the only at the first on the first stage in the first stage in the criminal justice system. These are the people that assist you. So if we don't have the necessary we don't have the necessary due diligence from the people that we have in the initial stages, how can we like how how can we advance anything else if you're if your civil rights was violated or your legal rights was violated, what can what can we and we don't have no one who wants to assist us in that matter. Well, you definitely have you de- you definitely have abolition today. We're out here doing things of that nature. Uh, what are some of the other things you'd like to see done? Um, the second thing would the second thing would be addressing the second thing would be addressing the Mitchell. If you understand that. A lot of these things, a lot of a lot of people get in trouble for for being um, lack of financial support. Um, father figures not around. We don't even have these programs within inside the institution. Everything has been taken away from us. College programs, anything that make you a productive person, that make you actually reflect on the things that you have done or the errors that you have committed. We don't have nobody to assist us with that. Like this is really a mental health issue. It's not. It's not really a problem. Everybody knows that the the tough on crime thing has failed, and that it was an arbitrary classification based on race. So therefore, you deny millions and millions of of black people, Hispanic people. You have denied them equal protection of the law under the Fourteenth Amendment. But everybody seems to just slide this type, this type of stuff under the wall. It's a mental health issue. We're not we're not afforded the same privileges as someone who is white. And then um, confronting whoever get encountered the justice system, or who's currently incarcerated. We don't have the same we don't have the same luxuries. You can even tell when you walk around through the prison system. The white people got the the, the white guys got the best jobs inside the jail the jail facility. They got the highest paid jobs. They, we even, we don't even have equality in the in the criminal justice system because you got the guys who you got the and not saying that I'm racist. I got I, I, I love the white people, but you have them. They have first take. They have first take and first step you, on everything. You just, that you're has just speaking the facts, brother. You're just speaking the facts. So let me ask you, uh, what is the average? Or can you name like some of the? the uh, salaries, if you want to call it a salary, for the different positions throughout the jail? Well, say for instance, right, as an example, and a good illustration, right now we got plum- we got plumbing in, we got plumbing in and, and auto mechanic, we got plumbing in, I think, maintenance, welding, and ma- welding and maintenance. Mm-hmm. All, all the guys who have these jobs inside the institution are white. And how much do those positions pay? <laughs> And they pay the top quality five to six dollars a day. Five to six dollars a day. Five to six. Five to six dollars a day. That's the maximum. And that's and that's the highest paid 
and that's the highest and that's the highest paid job and that's the highest paid job in the facility so and then you have something like uh i guess you would call it like a unit porter or something what do they get about 30 cents a day if you work at um sand, majority of people majority of people housed in the, in the institution has um sell sand. If the next alternative after that is food service, and you have to sit in, you have to stay in that position in, in order for you to gain. You have to go through the steps in order for you to get a maximum of three dollars and twenty cents per day. Per day. Hmm. And our funds. That's for instance. Now, if you have funds, now if you have funds, they take. They take what ten percent? They take ten percent. They take ten percent out of that pay that they give you. So that leaves you. If it's the average, if you got ninety, if you get ninety dollars. Now, if you had state pay and you was TSA, and they take you get thirty dollars, you only gonna you only you only make up to about thirty dollars a month. So they take ten percent off of that. So now you only got twenty dollars a month. Or if you was a kitchen worker and you get paid. You get paid three twenty. That's ninety, almost a hundred dollars. They take about ten percent of that, and they leave you with about eighty, seventy dollars, something like something in that nature. And then you got fines, restitution. They take all. They take all this stuff for these court fines and these court penalties. It's like taking blood. It's like taking blood out of stone. And 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 the the rest you get stolen from you by Keefe, right? Keefe does the uh, exactly. commissary. Yeah. Yes. And like an illustration for them, they're making it. They're making majors and majors and majors of dollars right now on batteries. You understand? Because they refused to give us the plug that was initially supposed to go with the tablet that they provided to us, but they never gave us the plug, the adapter plug to charge the batteries. So I mean, now we have to. <laughs> so now we playing Keefe because you pay three dollars for a pack of batteries. So now you pay Keefe about wow. you Keefe about. Twelve dollars every time you order. Every time you order commissary, which is every two weeks. And who does the? Uh, who runs the food program? Is that Aramark? No, no. Um, for the regular food, I'm not sure who runs the regular food for for Aramark, but I know we got food packages. The bottom line is the bottom line. We need to be we need to be privileged as if we was. We need to be privileged and have the luxury of ordering from any vendor of choice. You understand what I'm saying? That way we can spend the money. We can spend our money how we want to spend our money instead of somebody controlling how we spend our money. It's okay to have a limitation, but why would you want us to spend our money specifically with these people to make this amount of money off this? And you know, like it's it's it's, it's, it's quid pro quo all over. Of course. Well, that ties in with our show tonight, where we were talking about the GEO group, who you're very familiar with, of how. Everything ties together. They keep the money in house and they keep it circling amongst themselves. Yes. So that's why Correct. it's controlled as in, as into who you can Correct. purchase from. Correct. Max, do you have anything for the brother? Yeah, um, we do need to move on to our next segment, but I, I want to say a few things of hope to this brother. You know, I heard what you were saying, and you're pleased, and I want to let you know that the people out here working hard to get this done, and I don't know if you were a part of the 2017 or the 2018 National Prison Slave Labor Work Strike, but during that period, the prisoners themselves came out with 10 demands that we have been working on uh, tirelessly. And if the goalposts are not moving, it's not for lack of trying. We have uh, opponents who would rather see you inside a cage than outside of it. But we're definitely working hard to solve these problems, brother. Thank you so much for sharing your uh, knowledge and understanding with us here today. 
and free, and I highly appreciate it. And thank you guys for listening to me. Like, 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 like brother, De- like, the, like brother Dewan said, like we, it's been, it's, it's overdue. It's time for people to hear these cries. We can no longer sit back. And we can no longer sit back. It's, this is another. This is like a another black protest. Right. This is another black protest, and it's coming from behind the walls, front line. So I definitely appreciate you calling in, brother. You know, we have to move on with the show, but, of course, our air, airwaves are always open to you, brothers, and, you know, keep us informed. Keep us up to date. If there are any major changes, you know you can call me at any time. That's not a problem. Mm-hmm. You know, so definitely keep okay. us up to date, and we definitely appreciate your calls, and, you know, just want to let you all know that there are people out here who care, many, many mm-hmm. people who care. You know, we're we're fighting against a behemoth out here, so... You know, we we can't move as quickly as we want to, but we're definitely moving in the right direction. So once again, I thank you for your call, brother, and I'll talk to you soon. All right, thank thank you too, um, brother. Brother Dewan wanted to say say his goodbyes and his love to you to you guys too, and and, and once again, I thank right. you too. Sure. Hey, yourself, I appreciate you, black man, and thank you for y'all for the listeners and everybody out there. Just keep us in your thoughts, your memories, man, and your prayers. Continue to support us in everything that we do. And uh, all, and also, we're just going to continue to righteously protest through advocacy groups, man, and not do it like in times past, man. No violence, man. We're just going to do it through advocacy groups like yourself. We appreciate you, bro. We appreciate you, too, man. And, I mean, if you want to plug yourself as well, because you got something going on as well, you know? Yeah, yeah, definitely. I definitely want to plug in. I got, uh, I'm on Twitter at uh, I am Dewan Dennis one Right, the number one at the end of Dewan Dennis. I'm on Facebook at Dewan Dennis. On the captions, Peanut. Right, I got a book that's coming out this summer called Recovering Addict: Addiction to Gang Banging. Right, I talked about the psychological traumas through PTSD. Right, and I'm trying to protest, uh, protest the courts to uh, to get that as a mitigating factor to these young black men when they commit these violence or alleged violence that they have been committed, and use that as a mitigating factor when they're getting sentenced. I talk about a report I did called the Dennis Report in that book, Independent. Talk about how so, uh, people suffer from trauma, come up in the neighborhood, need to take that into consideration when getting sentenced as well, right? Science in the courtroom. Um, I have three movies that's coming out. I got one movie called Red Friend. I got a movie called Angel Town Gorilla. And I got an, another movie to Up Next Films, right? It's called Guilty by Association. It's based on a true story, my ordeal. Before I leave, I just want to say this, my brother, that I am, I am that person who was found guilty in Mercer County, the city of Trenton. You have 60 seconds remaining. 110% innocent. But because of who I used to be, I was found guilty by association. And I want to get that out there. Look into me, uh, Dewan Dennis at Peanut on uh, Facebook. Thank you, my brother. Continue to fight for the struggle for us, man. Thank you, too, brother. Thanks for the call. Thanks for the information. Thank you. Peace. Peace. Hold on for a minute there, Yusuf. Let me play this. Free, one of us is king. 
like I said, man, I got to pull that out of every now and then and just remind us Absolutely. none of us are free. You know? Absolutely. Um, Thank you for your patience, Max, because I know all of that kind of knocked us off of our uh, our program schedule. You know, we'll work but, it out, brother. We'll work yeah. it out. We had intended on going a little overtime today, so please hang out with us. We got some uh, amazing, eye-opening things available for you. But I, I want to take a moment and just really talk about not only the clip that we heard before the calls, but the calls themselves, and kind of put all of this together, uh, you know, and collect our thoughts on it. And then we'll go into our music segment, which would be fitting, I think. So, Yusuf, we'll start with you, man. Uh, between those two things that we just heard, uh, where are you at? You know, it, it takes me a split second to uh, process everything, man, and the song itself sums it up. You know, none of us are free. You know, when one person doesn't have their freedom and then we listen to the brothers and about the condition, and this is only one unit. You know, they're, they're, we're talking about one unit, and we we imagine that, Going to the two, what are we up to? Two point seven million that are incarcerated through the country right now. It's uh, two point three million, I believe, in the state prisons and federal prisons, and then in the jails. On any given day, it's about a half a million inside, and twelve million that go in and out of those jails throughout the year. And for the most part, that's the same cry or the same words that we would hear from every single one of them that these are the conditions countrywide, and it's all legalized by the 13th Amendment. Sure, everybody talks about, well, there's the 8th Amendment, and it, but the 13th Amendment usurps all of it. Yes, the 13th Amendment negates the 14th Amendment, the 15th Amendment. It allows the 6th and 8th to be violated because you're not considered a human being, let alone a citizen. You are designated as a slave, a state property who only rights are those which are allowed to you by the courts and your enslavers. Really, that's it. Uh, you know, so well, one of the things that stood out for me is the way we tied together the past and the present. The clip that I played was from back in 2006. And if you remember, uh, Representative Buffy McFadden said that between 1996-2006, the Colorado prison population doubled. Now, why did it double? We just came out of the 1994 or a crime bill, the Biden crime bill, and all of that mm-hmm. money was thrown on these private prisons, and they were just expanding all over the place where they were getting these uh, guaranteed 90 or 100% occupancy rates for up to 25 freaking years. And then we hear the brother come on a phone call with GlobalTel right there, talking about, hi, this is GlobalTel. We are going to rob you for the next five minutes. It's going to be like $3 a minute. You know, everybody else gets it for free or for 10 cents. It's a pandemic, but we're going to make our money. You know, and then they started telling us about those very same industries we were just talking about and just was warned about from Representative McFadden uh, that are operating indiscriminately within the system themselves. The Keithy that you mentioned earlier, for example, I think it's Keithy that has a brand of bag of potato chips that are only sold in prison. Oh, they have everything. They have rice. They have toothpaste. They got a whole list of products. That are only sold in prison and usually for higher prices than they're sold on the outside. So, yes. you know, they got these brothers working for $20 a month, and they're exploiting them for $100 a month. So guess what happens? 
Yeah, that's the uh, Keefe Commissary Network. And then did you actually hear where you said uh, they have the tablets, but they can't even get the, the plugs batteries. for the tablets because they, yep. they're being forced to purchase the batteries. It's a it's a perpetual product supply. You got to always keep buying batteries over and over and over and over again, man. And this is what was formed around these original for-profit prisons that were introduced by Ronald Reagan back in the 80s and then really given free reign when they went with the initial public offering of WCC during the Clinton campaigns. And we've only seen other presidents really just pushing forward since then. The Bush with his Patriot Act, which criminalized basically everyone, and, you know, uh, Obama, who really pushed into the immigration detention facilities, we saw them go from almost being empty to being guaranteed 34000 a month by Congress. The first time in history we ever guaranteed a prisoner cap, uh, per month uh, quota, <laughs> you know. And then right. with the Trump administration where he not only expanded the immigration facilities but also amped up the prisons and gave police free reign to use abuse. Uh, it's amazing, man. So those were some of the things that stood out for me. And one – when she mentioned about the 87% of all juvenile uh, offenders end up in prison, 87%. Right. It's, 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 it's a 9 out of 10 chance that, that if you go get locked up one time, you're going to end up in prison. Wow. Talking about how they are captive audience, and then we heard the captive audience on the phone with the captor in a recording behind them. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> oh, man. You got 60 seconds left or else. Pay up. Wow. Right. During a pandemic. What, when all they want to do is plead for help. That's it. And meanwhile, yeah. they're being pushed off the phone. Well, you know, I think it's a good time to get into our music break, brother. And when we come back, let's open up the mic. Cause other people might want to say something. Some of our callers might want to call in and offer uh, what it is they have to say, and I think after that we are scheduled for your presentation. So last week I was, you know, all over Man Killer Mike about what was going on with Diddy and them. I'm like, I don't want to hear rapping, but I did say I, no disrespect for all of the efforts that he's done for mass incarceration, quote unquote. But he really knows about the Thirteenth Amendment. He knows what's going on, going down with it. He's tried to express it before on Revolt, and he was cut off when he did that. But let's go and listen to a song by him. About Reagan, and it's called Reagan, Kill Mike. Or anything else for hostages, nor 
general, the method of the bullet. Some freedom of some bullshit. Will we ever do it bigger? Just keep settling for little shit. We brag on having bread, but none of us are bakers. We all talk having greens, but none of us on acres. If none of us on acres, and none of us grow wheat, then who will feed our people when our people need to eat? So it seems our people solve from lack of understanding. Cause all we seem to give them is some ballin' and some dancing. And some talking about our car and imaginary mansion. We should be indicted for bullshit we inciting. Telling children death and pretending it's exciting. We are advertisements for agony and pain. We exploit the youth, we tell them to join the gang. We tell them dope stories, introduce them to the gang. Just like all of us North introduced us to cocaine. In the 80s when them bricks came on military planes. A few months ago, I told the American people I did not trade arms for hostages. My heart and my best intentions still tell me that's true, but the facts and the evidence tell me it is not. The end of the Reagan era, I'm like level 12 old enough to understand the shit that changed forever. They declared the war on drugs, like a war on terror. But what they really did was let the police terrorize whoever. But mostly black boys, but they would call us niggas. And lay us on our belly while they fingers on their triggers. They boots was on our head, they dogs was on our crotches. And they would beat us up if we had diamonds on our watches. And they would take our drugs and money as they pick our pockets. I guess that that's the privilege of police and for some profits. But thanks to Reaganomics, prison turned to profit. Cause free labor's the cornerstone of U.S. economics. Cause slavery was abolished unless you are in prison. You think I ambush it and then read the 13th Amendment. And voluntary servitude and slavery get prohibited. That's why they giving drug offenders time and double dick. Ronald Reagan was an actor, not at all a factor. Just an employee of the country's real master. Just like the Bushes, Clinton and Obama. Just another talking head telling lies on teleprompters. If you don't believe the theory, then argue with this logic. Why did Reagan and Obama both go after Gaddafi? We invading the sovereign soil, going after oil. Taking countries is a hobby, pay for by the oil lobby. Same as in Iraq and Afghanistan. And I'm a dinner judge, say they coming for Iran. They only love the rich and how they load the post. If I say any more, they might be at my door. Who the fuck is that? Staring in my window, doing that surveillance on Mr. Michael Rinder. I'm dropping off the grid before they pump the lid. I leave you with a word, I'm glad Reagan did. Abolitionist music, Reagan by Killer Mike. Like I said, this brother knows what's going on. I wish he would talk about it a whole lot more, because he definitely knows. We're going to open up our phone lines. We're at 515-605-9814, 515-605-9814. If you want to participate in the conversation, just press the number one. It'll put your hand up on my board so I know that you want to speak. In the meantime, uh, we'll continue the conversation. Brother Yusuf? Yes, sir. So, uh... 
one thing that I just wanted to do some follow-ups to last week's programming regarding the uh, coronavirus in the prisons and jails across the com- uh, across the country. Have a couple of little uh, tidbits. We'll post the links to the articles online on our uh, Abolition Today Facebook page, and we'll also have them in certain other areas. You'll see them on my page, Yusuf Hassan. You'll see them on Max's page, Max Parthas. The first one comes from CBS17.com. It says 280-plus test positive for COVID-19 at North Carolina prison near Goldsboro. 280 of the 700 prisoners test positive at Neus Correctional Institution in Wayne County. Just two weeks ago, that number was at two. Say that again. Two weeks ago, the number was at two. Today it's 280, and that's 40% of the population within the within that uh, one one institution. Uh, according to wavy.com, wavy.com, this is News 10 in Virginia. Article says Virginia Juvenile Detention Center new seat, new coronavirus hotspot. 25 children tested positive at the Bon Air Juvenile Correctional Center outside Richmond. According to the Washington-based group, the Sentencing Project, 101 incarcerated juveniles are tested positive nationwide, but they believe the real number is likely much higher because many with symptoms are not being tested. Widespread calls to Governor Ralph Northam have been made requesting release many children. In the same vein, there is an article released by CBS12.com entitled Youths at South Florida Juvenile Facility Positive for COVID-19, which highlights the conditions at the Broward Regional Juvenile Detention Center, the Broward Youth Treatment Center, and the Pinellas Regional Juvenile Detention Center. There are two other articles dealing with Marion County, Illinois. One comes from the MarionStar.com. National Guard called to Marion Prison as county coronavirus cases near 1,000. Then, just a few hours later, MSN.com reported more than 1,300 inmates test positive for coronavirus in Ohio. It's uh, 1,057 at Marion, 202 at uh, Pickaway, which includes four deaths, and 101 at Franklin. Meals have been cut down to two, uh, two meals a day, they're citing as uh, uh, shortness of staff. Also, 103 staff have tested positive at Marion with one death. This is the second Ohio facility in which National Guard has been utilized without any concrete explanation as to why the uh, National Guard is there. Coming from the Tampa Bay Times, uh, it's at tampabay.com. COVID-19 cases reported in 54 prisons. Correction officials said there are 4,062 inmates throughout the state who have been placed in medical quarantine or medical isolation after being exposed to the highly contagious virus. This is more than double that from Thursday. More than double that from Thursday. Four deaths at Blackwater. Blackwater, as you know, is owned by the GEO Group. Four deaths at the Blackwater River Correctional Facility in Santa Rosa County. Nearly all inmates at the Tomoka Correctional Institution have been exposed to the virus. 1,126 out of the 1,263 are in medical quarantine. 
There's also a YouTube video that I encourage everyone to watch. It's entitled, Michigan Inmate Bids Farewell, Predicts Death and Disruptive Chaos Amidst Mounting COVID-19. He breaks down the fallacy behind many of the releases. He says the majority of those released were people who should have been released a long time ago but were not given proper jail time credits or who were given frivolous hits at the parole board. So even the information that they're putting out about who's being released, it's not as truthful as they're putting it out to be. They're not feeling sorry for people or, you know, giving people time service, people that should have been out a long time ago. D.C. jail inmates, another article entitled, D.C. jail inmates for coronavirus barred from access to lawyers, family showers, and changes of clothing, inspectors say. At the D.C. Uh, jail, one in three inmates are in quarantine or at isolation. That's 452 out of the 1,442. And lastly, just a a bit of, uh, I, don't, I don't want to say good news, but at least not bad news. Uh, reported by the Chicago Sun-Times, Reverend Jesse Jackson pens his second letter to Trump urging coronavirus testing for all incarcerated pieces. Uh, incarcerated people. The letter urges him to test all 2.2 million people for COVID-19 that are incarcerated in the country during the pandemic. He states that if one visitor has already transmitted the virus to an inmate, that inmate may have transmitted it to another inmate, and that pattern could put many, if not the entire prison uh, population, in jeopardy because social distancing, he quotes, is not an option for prisoners. Jail could become an incubator and death sentence for those incarcerated. So that's my piece for the week, uh, Max. Uh, as I stated, that all of these articles will be available on our page. Max, you there? Did you forget to uh, unmute? Yes, I did, as a matter of fact, but I'm here. It's okay, brother. Hi. It all comes together with a great big bow on it, as we always do. And, uh, you know, they're talking about, you're talking about Jesse Jackson that is asking for basically 3 million people to be tested because you've got to include the juvie detention facilities and the jails and the detention centers, immigration detention centers. It's all the same Absolutely. thing, same companies running them, right? So, uh, you know, they're not going to do that. And the brother we were just talking earlier with the question I asked him, you know, if they're not testing everybody, it means that the asymptomatic People without symptoms are, are just passing it around, and nobody's bothering to do anything about it because they don't have symptoms, <laughs> you know? And the only right. way to find out if you really got it is if you take the test. So here it is, you know, just throw them all in a room together and let God sort it out. It's terrible, yeah. man. that's how it sounds. You know, like we heard the one North Carolina prison. Two weeks ago it was only two people, and they probably blew it off and said, okay, we don't have a problem, and here it is. Two weeks later, you have 280 people. Forty percent of the prison population is now infected. We pointed out last week that at least, at least 113,000 people could be released tomorrow with no harm to society because they are no threat whatsoever. They're in there for the most minor of reasons. And we pointed out that only hundreds, a few hundred here, a few hundred there are being released. So it's very clear that for some unexplained hint, hint reason, 
they do not want to make these beds empty. They, uh, what, what is an empty prison worth? What is the prison worth if you lost five, 6,000 people? Well, five, 6,000 people multiplied depending on what state you're in. Let's just go with New York because they're the big shots, right? If you right. multiply that $200,000 per bed a year times 5,000, that's a freaking fortune that they're losing. Absolutely. And that's what it's all about. And that also means that they'd have to lay off lay off uh, workers. They'd be in breach of contract to the many different companies that contract within the prison when you talk about those providing health care, those providing food, you know, those providing commissary, the phone companies. You know how you know how it goes, Max. Exactly. It's a trickle-down effect because if you've got no prisoners, no captive audience, then all of them – these satellite companies that uh, live and breathe on the incarceration of human beings wouldn't be able to function. It would all come tumbling down, which shows that the purpose has never been about reducing the population of prisoners, but increasing it significantly, significantly, uh, like they did in Colorado, where between 96 and 2006, their prison population doubled. And that's how these private prisons make money. But the private prisons aren't the only ones doing it. They just opened up the floodgates and gave an excuse through their greed for state, federal, and local jails and prisons to do the same exact thing. Absolutely. Well, we are, we are definitely running late today. So uh, we're going to get to our points where we're about to wrap it up, man. Uh, did you want to add any final comments in regards to any of the topics that we covered today before we go into our closing statements? No, we've, we've, we've touched on a lot, and we're going to touch on it again many times in the future. So it's no need at the moment. Well, I hope we did a really good job for people today breaking down what's going on with these private prisons from their beginnings, evil, rotten beginnings, to their global uh, dominance today. Just in a few short 26 years have become the top number one employers across the freaking planet. I hope we really brought home just how that's happening and all of the crooked corruption behind it. There's so much more involved, more than we could ever say if we just dedicated all our time to that alone. So we'll leave it up to you to find out as much as you possibly can. But always spread the word and let them know that here on Abolition Today, we're talking about this topic. There's there's a voice for those who didn't have a voice. Um, All right, so with that said, I'm going to bring us to our closing statements And then we're going to go into our final segment, uh, which is our Bridging the Gap segment. So, uh, Yusuf, do you have any final comments for evening? You know, I'd I'd like to reiterate something that Killer Mike said in his song. I had another quote that I was going to do from William Lloyd Garrison, but just hearing Killer Mike's song, that's the first time I've ever heard that song. So just something that really hit home for me right in the middle. He says, I guess that's that's the privilege of policing for some profit, but thanks to mm-hmm. Reaganomics, prisons turn to profits because free labor is the cornerstone of U.S. economics because slavery was abolished unless you're in prison. You think I'm bullshitting? Then read the 13th Amendment. Involuntary servitude and slavery it prohibits. That's why they're giving drug offenders time in double digits. He knows. They all know, man. They all know. But maybe they're afraid. Maybe they haven't pieced together the way things the way we have pieced it together. But the bottom line is this. 
The revolution starts in your mind. You cannot change anything doing the same thing over and over again, expecting new results. You've got to look at this from a new perspective. And what's that new perspective? That this is a crime against humanity called slavery. And you don't abolish, I mean, you don't reform slavery. You don't fix slavery. You abolish it. All right, well, here's my quote for the night. That should have been it, but I want to share one more, right? This comes from Frederick Go ahead, Douglass. brother. <laughs> and he said, he said, they would not call it slavery. It's some other name. Slavery has been fruitful in giving herself names, and it will call itself by yet another name. And you and I and all of us had better wait and see what new form this old monster will assume and what new skin this old snake will come forth. Frederick Douglass. North Star. Peace. Till next week. So we're going to go into our final segment of Bridging the Gap, uh, Part 6. This is where Ozzie Davis reads Frederick Douglass, followed by Labby Sifre, Something Inside So Strong. We won't even give a description tonight. We want you to let it unfold in your heart. Until next week, think of abolition today. Peace. Fini. Abolition. Abolition. All the anti-slavery meetings held in New Bedford, I promptly attended, my heart bounding at every true utterance against the slave system and every rebuke of its friends and supporters. In the summer of 1841, a grand anti-slavery convention was held in Nantucket under the auspices of Mr. Garrison and his friends. I determined on attending the meeting, though I had no thought of taking any part in any of its proceedings. But once there, I felt strongly moved to speak, and though I trembled in every limb, I spoke a few moments, describing my life as a slave. At the close of this great meeting, I was approached by Mr. John A. Collins, then the general agent of the Massachusetts Anti-Slavery Society, and urged to become an agent of that society and publicly advocate its principles. I was reluctant to accept the position. I had not been quite three years from slavery and was honestly distrustful of my ability. Besides, publicity might discover me to my master. But Mr. Collins was not to be refused, and I finally consented to go out for three months. I traveled in the company of white abolitionists and lectured to large meetings. Many came, uh, no doubt from curiosity, to hear what a Negro could say in his own cause. I was generally introduced as a chattel, a thing, a piece of Southern property, the chairman assuring the audience that it could speak. As a fugitive slave lecturer, I faced many hostilities. My treatment in the use of public conveyances was extremely rough. On the railroads, there was a mean, dirty, and uncomfortable car set apart for Negro travelers called the Jim Crow car. Regarding this as the fruit of slaveholding prejudice and being determined to fight the spirit of slavery wherever I might find it, I resolved to avoid this car, though it sometimes required some courage to do so. I sometimes was soundly beaten by conductors and brakemen. At several of our meetings, my fellow abolitionists and I were mobbed, and several of us had our good clothes spoiled by evil-smelling eggs. On one occasion, we had barely begun to speak when a mob of about 60 of the roughest characters I had ever looked upon ordered us through its leader to be silent threatening us if we were not with violence. We attempted to dissuade them, but they had not come to parley, but to fight, and were well armed. They tore down the platform on which we stood, 
and assaulted us. Undertaking to fight my way through the crowd with a stick which I caught up in the melee, I attracted the fury of the mob which laid me prostrate on the ground under a torrent of blows. Leaving me thus, with my right hand broken and in a state of unconsciousness, the mobocrats hastily mounted their horses and rode off. I was soon raised up and nursed and bandaged. But as the bones broken were not properly set, my hand has never recovered its natural strength and dexterity. During the first three or four months of my work as an anti-slavery agent, my speeches were almost exclusively made up of narrations of my own personal experience as a slave. Let us have the facts, said the people. But I was now reading and thinking. New views of the subject were being presented to my mind. It did not entirely satisfy me to narrate wrongs. I felt like denouncing them. I could not always curb my moral indignation for the perpetrators of slave-holding villainy long enough for a circumstantial statement of the facts, which I felt almost sure everybody know. People won't believe you ever were a slave, Frederick, if you keep on this way, my friends told me. It is not best that you seem too learned. These friends were not altogether wrong in their advice. And still I must speak just the word that seemed to me to be the word to be spoken by me. At last, the apprehended trouble came. People doubted if I had ever been a slave. They said I did not talk like a slave, look like a slave, or act like a slave, and that they believed I had never been south of Mason and Dixon's line. I decided to write out the leading facts connected with my experience in slavery, giving names of persons, places, and dates, thus putting it in the power of any who doubted to ascertain the truth or falsehood of my story. This book, entitled Narrative of the Life of Frederick Douglass, an American Slave, was published in Boston in 1845. William Lloyd Garrison wrote the preface to my book. My book soon became known in Maryland, and I had reason to believe that an effort would be made to recapture me. I was persuaded by my friends to leave the country and was sent as an agent to Great Britain. The object of my labors in Great Britain was the concentration of the moral and religious sentiment of its people against American slavery. To this end, I visited and lectured in nearly all the large towns and cities of the United Kingdom and enjoyed many favorable opportunities for observation and information. Some notion may be formed of the difference in my feelings and circumstances while abroad from a letter I wrote to Mr. Garrison on January 1st, 1846. I live a new life. The warm and generous cooperation extended me by the friends of my despised race, the prompt and liberal manners with which the press has rendered me its aid, the glorious enthusiasm with which thousands have flocked to hear the cruel wrongs of my downtrodden and long enslaved fellow countrymen portrayed, the deep sympathy for the slave and the strong abhorrence of the slaveholders everywhere evinced the cordiality with which members and ministers of various religious bodies and of various shades of religious opinion have embraced me and lent me their aid, the kind hospitality constantly profit me by persons of the highest rank in society, the spirit of freedom that seems to animate all with whom I come in contact, and the entire absence of everything that looks like prejudice against me on account of the color of my skin, contrast so strongly with my long and bitter experience in the United States that I look with wonder and amazement on the transition.